This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Talking Dirty over at East Roston Old Vicarage, looking sensational in scarlet, uh, just after his birthday, in fact, it's Alan <laughs> Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and ever so handsome horticulturalist. What a very good handle he's got. <laughs> well, well, I say thank you, Emma. I didn't know you have noticed. fact, <laughs> over in Cambridgeshire, we have, we have the eminent, the effervescent, the ever-wonderful Thordis, Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. Fantastic. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So our guest this week is uh, an absolute inspiration. The woman behind the powerhouse behind uh, the pottery company, Emma Bridgewater, which is often so botanically inspired. And if you've seen their new collection, you'll know it's just a celebration of, of such wonderful, uh, beautiful spring wildflowers and summer wildflowers. Um, also closely linked to the National Garden Scheme. She is a, a massive fan of gardening and all things planty. Emma Bridgewater, do you have any middle names to bring to the party? Well, mine is a rather restrained middle name. I'm Emma Mary Bridgewater. Oh, it's a lovely name. Do you know it where they nice. came from? Do you know why they were picked? Oh, mum said when she um, chose, when she and my dad chose Emma for me, there were no other Emmas. And she was very much enthralled to the rather um, contrary her heroine, uh, the Jane Austen heroine, Emma Woodhouse. And um, she said she knew I'd have a terribly original name. Huh. <laughs> that wasn't true, was it? <laughs> Thereafter, almost every family had to have an Emma. Um, but that's nice. And no, I don't know where the Mary came from. I think she just liked it. They must be quite pleased that despite the fact that many people have been called Emma ever after you were named Emma. The name Emma Bridgewater is quite something to be a name where it almost feels like they can't be separated. You know, it's like Hollywood actors where their name is just their first and their second name together. You are one of those people. Oh, that, well, it's quite a thought that, isn't it? I, I have to say, I think the name has been a massive help. It sounds, I mean, people often assume it's an old family business that I resurrected or something. It's, it's got a very good industrial revolution sort of sound to it, hasn't it? Which is all to the good. <laughs> but Emma Bridgewater has become the, the generic name for your kind of Chinese pottery. It, it, it is what it is. It's you the person that we're talking to today, and it is all of your wares. And I went on your website this morning and I had a look just to, just to you know, just to catch up and all the rest of it, because, I mean, you regularly send me emails and things like that. You probably don't know this, but the business does. Um, yeah, it isn't was, me personally. So. I was so captivated with, I'll just tell you, I mean, it's probably ridiculous, but dandelions and insects, I just love that. And I saw a butter dish. And you'll never guess it was so fortuitous because my cat jumped on the worktop and swiped the butter dish up and crashed it to the floor the other day because he's mad to get the butter. So mm. I just said, I'll get one of your butter dishes. Oh, I can't wow. have it. Oh, oh. Can't have it. all gone. Yes. <laughs> all gone. And it's we've had an astonishing week. We launched that collection this Monday 
and we've pretty much sold out. It's extraordinary. Think, it's very, I, very, very big at the moment. I think it just goes to show the popularity and, and the um, the right thing. And it's the right thing at the right time, isn't it? It's a nerve that you've struck with people, um, and it's 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 the same with horticulture. With going back to gardening in lockdown, people want those nice natural things around them in lockdown, and I think Emma Bridgewater is part of that. Dare I say? Well, thank you very much. That's, I mean, I hope to be kind of relevant and in touch with my lovely customers. And I know that like me, they're, they're going for lots of walks and suddenly, yeah. I mean, whether your grandmother as mine did kind of, <laughs> she pressed my face into the wildflowers, you know, she really made me learn them when I was little, but whether you had that bossy granny or not, I mean, wonderful granny, I think everybody is super aware of, of the natural world and last spring and summer was so ravishing, wasn't it? We had such yeah. great weather yeah. that sort of nature laid on this incredible sort of oh, it was amazing sort of show, wasn't it? I, I feel as we all went for our walks, it, it was like there was some sort of magic thing going on one beautiful day after another. Certainly here in North Norfolk, it seemed to be that. I think also it was the fact that as people were probably forced to stay together in their bubbles or in their little groups, they were forced to go outside and they were forced to, they were not necessarily forced, but they did look. They looked yeah, because yeah. they were there and they had the time. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I mean, when I first went to school, we had nature walks. Mum and dad on a Sunday afternoon, we're going for a walk. And we used to walk all over the farm. Um, mm. that, and, we, you know, we were continually being taught to look for, I don't know, ladybirds or caterpillars or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you'd stand in front of a bush with father and father say, I can see five ladybirds. Can you count them? And until you could count them, you weren't allowed to move on. <laughs> well, exactly. Those. Were, well, he sounds quite like my granny, you know, that strict yeah. and um, and very keen that we should understand how wonderful it is and how, yeah. how varied and, and what a lot's going on out there. And we've had David Attenborough telling us exactly the same lesson, sort of all of us together. He's been doing the farm walk that your dad gave yeah. you, hasn't he? Yeah, exactly. Emma, what would your favourite flower be at the moment? I have to say at the moment because I, I suspect it probably changes throughout the year, but what would it be at the moment? It, you're so right about it being seasonal. Um, well, I'm poised. The blackthorn all coming out is pretty bloody lovely. Yeah. But the, and the snowdrops, are, as they go, you sort of, in a terribly callous way, hurry away, hurry away. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? What's next? And I can't wait for the blossom. You know how the, the, there's that succession of blossom. There's the early things like the blackthorn that flower on the wood. And then it gets better and better and better and better until you get to the apple blossom at the end of May. You know what Beth Chatto called the blackthorn blossom? She called it the, the blackthorn winter. Yes, invariably, yes. It, it coincided with a period of harsh spring weather. Normally, you know, those nasty easterlies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yes. but that was the Blackthorn winter, wasn't it? God, we've but really had just, that last week. It was very cheering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, and of course, I ran out of central heating oil to celebrate that extraordinarily cold snap. I was like, um, I mean, I, I, it was, I don't know what it was like here. It was, it was like the 1950s. I was trudging <laughs> about in ski trousers, <laughs> wearing every jersey I own. And, um, wishing that I had many more uh, wood-burning stoves. I've only got two, and I couldn't really get a proper fog up at all. It was freezing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> when it comes to your inspiration, like qu quite clearly there, we've seen there's, you know, going for walks and getting inspiration from what you see around you. We associate you with all these wonderful botanical prints. Also, of course, your polka dots and your dog breeds and your wonderful cities of the world. To go right back to the beginning, when it was you sort of at home making those first initial ones, was it immediately kind of botanical? Um, wh when, did, when did the kind of the plant-based inspiration strike? Okay, I've got something to show you just right here. This lovely, lovely plate was on my mum's dresser and I always loved it. And it's hand painted in a Welsh pottery. Um, Is it Weems? No, it's not. What happened was after Weems closed down, you know, that was the, the great sort of Edwardian yeah. middle class must have. Um, and it closed, I think when, I think he was called Carl Nicola, the Czech painter who was the sort of driving force. Um, at Weems, possibly he died, it, it, it declined quite quickly, but this guy called, there was a Welsh painter called Shufflebottom. I can never forget his name. Um, no. <laughs> and it's called, I can't remember, and I can't say the Welsh, it's something like Clanelli, the, the, the pottery that made this lovely, lovely, very much Weems inspired freehand roses. And I sort of, I've always aspired to that. It seems to me, you kind of need, need look no further. So when the thought of, of China for my mum, and it was specifically her birthday that, that prompted it one year, and, but it was the thought of her kitchen. And it was, she had always had a big mismatched dresser full of China that she liked. And that rosy plate was always on it. And somehow that's always had some kind of central role. And, I did quite a lot of my very first kind of pummeling my imagination and, and kind of working out what I really wanted to say with a friend, a cousin who actually lives just near here and has a very beautiful walled garden. And the figs there were a massive inspiration. I've got a funny sort of little miniature version <laughs> there, which I like very, very much. And that was quite early on. It wasn't the first pattern I did, but very nearly. But the truth is people who make lovely China have always put horticultural things on. The ancient Greeks put lovely twirly vines, which are a sort of, I mean, they're just a perennially lovely motif because of all those tendrils, as well as the grapes being beautiful. But I think it's, um, isn't it inevitable? Isn't it natural? Isn't it wonderful to put, not just um, flowers, but also for me, fruit and veg. I love that slightly eccentric thing for a lot of vegetables. So do well, I. I think that's marvelous. I love the peas. I love yeah. your peas. And and that and the and the and the um did you do something with asparagus? I think you did. Oh yes. And and there was a rather my best recently was a great big red cabbage looking like an oh, enormous yes. rose. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's Matthew's lovely watercolours um applied as a lyso, whereas you know, as a print. Yeah. And then it's applied by hand. It isn't a kind of robotic arm that sticks his, his um, reproduced painting on. But these, the spongeware, um, is every single print done by hand, every single motif. So no two are the same. And that was, that was really, that was what I loved. And I, 
it's the sort of perfect imperfection of nature that one's always after. And I like the very sort of um, spontaneous feeling of sponge well, it, certainly, it certainly has that. I mean, I, I think that um, the purposeful imperfection, if you like, is almost perfection. It you is, understand it? me, because nature is imperfect all the oh, time. Well, exactly. Anything you know. perfect is boring. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I'm not and perfect. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Anyway, right, the said granny, the very influential, um, instructive, wildflower-loving granny, was also a great sewer. And uh, she's, I remember um, making an enormous crocheted bedspread with her when I broke my leg aged about eight. And um, at the end, she, she, who was very exacting and had made me do it really carefully and, and precisely. So you can't tell looking at the bedspread, which I've got here, which were her squares and which were mine. But then I remember she put in an imperfection. She said, oh, it's, um, it's an Arabic tradition. You, you must always put in a deliberate mistake because you've got to be very clear that you must never try to imitate the perfection of God's creation. You must always acknowledge your humanity and your, your imperfection, which I've, it's really stayed with me that. So I get, I get a bit annoyed when, in a way we've got, I mean, there are more than 70 girls doing the hand decorating and they are infinitely better than I ever was at it. And I sometimes say, we're getting too neat, too perfect. Come on, we can, we have to remember that this is hand done. So for me, the, the sort of, yeah, the perfection of imperfection is, is what I really love. Well, I think it's absolutely marvelous, but I mean, you don't take it to the extent that Mason's Ironstone China did way back in the 1900s, when they would have little children of seven and eight decorating their plates and things, and they can be beautifully blobby. <laughs> but I mean, I say blobby, I mean really blobby. Um, so you can almost, um, you know, not see what the, the, the subject is supposed to be. And you get, it, get the yeah, that's, that's a different thing, isn't it? And yeah. uh, we're not so keen on child labour. No, <laughs> no quite. That, does, that doesn't happen so much these days. How um, terribly civilised. <laughs> uh, no, it's, a, it's an interesting thing in that I probably am the person who's scuffling around in the back of Richard Scott's shop, hoping to find the, the more blobby things. I really love yes. that. And there is a really interesting thing that happens with selling on the internet rather than in a shop. Um, we've just closed our two London shops for good, which is really sad. But I always found it very instructive watching people going through the shelves and picking the ones that they liked. And I felt that yes. was how it should be. But if you sell off, the, off a photograph on a website, um, something seen on Instagram or whatever, people are quite disconcerted if what arrives doesn't look pretty much like that. And I get their point, you know, they haven't seen the array and made the choice. So we've kind of created an interesting conundrum there. And we're trying to build into the marketing a bit more information and reminding people and showing how it's decorated. Well, I think, I think, I think that, that's enormously important because, I mean, sadly, you just said that you've closed both your London shops completely understandable it's the financial situation that we find ourselves in because of the lockdown and yeah. because of the dreadful period in our lives that we're going through but isn't that don't you find that do, do you find it for yourself I know I find it for me that the the process of actually going to a shop and looking and touching and seeing and turning it over and I feeling it yes yeah no no I'm gonna miss that dreadfully I mean I don't know what you think but I mean poor god London is so awful 
I don't, I mean, the, the empty streets break your heart. It's so peculiar. And of course, that's not, it's not going to come back immediately, but it no. will come back. But I don't know. I mean, lots of changes to how we shop had already taken hold. And the pandemic was just a sort of final push, really. But I think, I think there will, everything's cyclical, isn't it? I think it'll come back. Yes. But I mean, what we find is, bef you know, before the pandemic, we, we were, whereas our London street traffic was dwindling, the factory shop uh, with people making it a deliberate trip, sometimes from quite a long way away, those numbers were going up and up. And I think you've kind of got to make it more interesting. I bet people come to your unbelievable garden and shop like mad if, you know, if you, if, if you offer them the right retail because you've made them excited and and sort of fired up their imaginations and I think there's something that we have to learn as retailers. With your business I, I always get the feeling that although it's grown exponentially that it's always sort of re you've retained such a kind of a close eye on it and it's retained all of the original ideas that were behind it and all the original things you wanted to achieve none of that has been lost but I wonder when it's such a big machine and it's just this massive concern do you ever have an idea for something and there are other people who say I'm not sure sprouts are a good idea or, or you know something like that oh yes definitely definitely I mean we're now as you say it's a big sophisticated setup and the product development team are fantastic I do, um, I mean, I sort of aim to inspire them rather than say, you must do this. I don't think it ever comes down to you must. If I, if I fail to inspire them, I can feel there's probably a flaw in the Sprouts idea. In fact, I did prevail and we put Sprouts on a teapot one Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a sort of qualified success. <laughs> um, I mean, I like a joke in pottery myself a lot and I felt that I sometimes think it's important that there are things that aren't there for mass sales. They're, they're, there, um, they're there because I feel they should be. Um, but, but sort of between us, I think we're quite good at squaring that circle. I probably do want to go a bit further, a bit faster. And I, <laughs> I want more or less. I'm, I, my tastes are probably a little more minimal than, um, than the majority of our customers who really love a lot of decorating um and so and so there's a sort of constant evolution and a constant conversation between us and the customers and between us in the studio and with marketing and so it's a kind of um it's a very dynamic alive process which i really really relish and it feels feels as if the you know the, the decisions that we come to I, I'm I'm normally really happy about it. I you know I think and I think when you're having a heated let's not say row but you know heated conversation about whether this Discussion. whether I've gone too far I mean I for example I don't think that the head of product thought so much of dandelions when she first heard the idea and when we started to sample it I think she was thinking again maybe just on two or three pieces but I pressed my point which is that I felt that that I as I thought about it on in that thoughtful walk way that we were talking about earlier, I realized that they're amazing, um, they're very nectar rich. So yeah. our beleaguered insects benefit from them enormously. And as I thought about Brexit and the fix we're in, you know, all the difficulties we're encountering, there's something about the dogged 
opportune sort of cheerfulness of dandelions, the way they'll thrive in any little corner. I thought, come on guys, this is our national emblem. This is, there's something really important about it. And it, we shouldn't always think in sort of big grand terms about peonies and, and roses and um, sort of flashy flowers. It's really great to look at this, this something, this, this, this weed that is mercilessly rooted out by most gardeners and say, hang on, stop, look, let some of them live and admire what they stand for. I think it's that dandelions are one of the plants that thrive along our roadside, our verges. Exactly. And there's nothing more cheerful in uh, late March, beginning of April, middle of April, than just driving out or going somewhere and, or walking and just seeing this these sheets of this brilliant golden, golden yellow. Yeah. It is just so cheerful. I do, I, and anybody that does totally. the thing against dandelions, I mean, I could not live without dandelions. Mm. What would I feed my tortoise? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and do you do, I I was planning to do it this summer. I, I forgot to do it last year. Sometimes my manager is it by mistake, putting some flower pots uh, over a few plants and managing to blanch mm. some leaves in a rather, rather groovy French way. Yes. You see, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that's something that an awful lot of people probably don't know about. I mean, it's probably written about somewhere in an obscure book or something, or maybe Elizabeth David touched Jeffrey on it. Jeffrey Grigson something. might have told us about it, mightn't he, all those years ago. Yes, he might, or Jane might, may have done touched yes, on it as well. Yes, She probably used it in her cookery books. Mm. So it could well have been um, documented, I'm sure it is, but it's one of those things that people don't think about. So anybody out there, go and get a, an upturned terracotta pot, Put it over your dandelions, yes. and when the leaves are blanched, use them in a salad. They're yeah. much like an endive, aren't they, really? Oh, absolutely. It's just like being in Paris. Suddenly you're yes. having a very, very um, lovely, different-tasting salad. I became... Yeah. I mean, my, my gardening obsession last year really was herbs. It was realising just how you transform your life by growing lots and lots of herbs. That, I feel that was my biggest success. That and kale, which was <laughs> astonishingly good. It really, it was, the, it was the plant that went on giving. <laughs> I, I ate tons and tons. I absolutely love it. I couldn't have been happier. It was the most lucky bit of work. It was the first thing I planted and it was just one row and it went on and on and on. I couldn't kill it off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know from, you know, your wonderful pottery with tomatoes on it, obviously there's a lot of your work that gets inspired directly from your garden. What is your garden like? How much of it do you give over to edibles? How much is it ornamentals? Do you like to kind of do a lot of propagating? Are you more about sort of these perennials or shrubs or whatever? Tell us about it. Paint us a picture okay. of your garden. Okay, now listen, brace yourself. Full <laughs> disclosure. I am, um, I used to be, but I am no longer married to a tremendously good gardener. Um, Matthew is, and as a partnership, we made several quite, really quite amazing gardens. And the one I left him to is spectacular. So it's a really marvelous setup in, in Oxfordshire and he'll do wonderful things there. Now, I was always the one waving my hands around and saying cherry orchards here and avenues there. And, um, and why don't we plant all the roses in the world here for picking? Um, I had, we had this great realization that there are lots and lots of rather prissy roses that you don't particularly want to look at for beauty. You want them planted out in rows in a vegetable garden 
for fierce picking because they just to the exact extent that nobody really wants to look at a blue moon in their garden um, in a rose bed or something. When it's picked in, in profusion in a jug, it's the most glamorous, extraordinary thing. So there was sort of a huge big scale um, and Matthew's a very good plantsman, but the truth is he was doing the, the plantsman work. And now, now I'm on my own in a much smaller garden and I'm really lazy. <laughs> so it took me some time to rev myself up, to, to dig. I finally dug, a, probably in April last year, May even, um, a bit of, of rough grass. It was tremendously hard work. And I was so proud of myself. That was my first proper gardening on my own ever. <laughs> um, it's not, I mean, it doesn't remotely live up to, to um, Matthew's standards, but in a way I'm having, I'm rather enjoying the sort of kicking back feeling of doing exactly what I wanted, which is having lots and lots of herbs, managing to find two little hot spots that I could make tomatoes work in that as aforementioned, great success with kale. And I made my sweet pea wigwams. And it was such a weird summer to be gardening from scratch because I had, he hadn't even left me any tools here. There was one very bendy <laughs> fork and a, and a wheelbarrow with a puncture. And, um, and everyone was closed to begin with. So I, I was improvising hard. And one of those, I, you know, I'd stop whenever I was driving and saw things by the side of the road. So I wound up with some jolly peculiar things <laughs> going here that people had been selling their excess of by the road. But it was, and I don't know, I can't say that it's going to be a sort of, um, that I'm progressing swiftly to, to, to tremendously good high standards, but I know that I'm finding my own way. And I, I don't want to make, I will never make a sort of great, marvellous destination garden, I don't think. But I, it is making me terrifically happy. And I think my biggest thrill has been, I'll show you, I've got a lot of geraniums here. In fact, I want, to down, I want you to put me straight on the difference between pelagoniums and geraniums. I have no idea. But <laughs> well, they, I, can do it, I can do it very quickly. Okay, I can good. do it very quickly. Pelagoniums are pelagoniums and geraniums are geraniums. <laughs> you're, you're, because How did I not know that? Geraniums are hardy herbaceous perennials, and I don't know how pelagoniums ever became known as geraniums, but I think the definition was between the regals and the, uni and the uniques and the zonals. Now, the zonals have circular leaves, often with a wavy edge, and they have a zone of darker green or brown on the leaf. Yes. That is what's called a geranium. The ones with the crinkled leaves and the slightly uh, serrated edges were either regals or unique pelagoniums. Uniques have smaller flowers than regals, and regals were bred from the uniques, making them so-called improved, like the Spencer sweet peas were, Im were improved from the grandifloras. Yes. Um, not necessarily better, but bigger. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's it, and that's, that's the difference between the two. But if you get um, a unique pelagonium, which has smaller flowers than the regals, and you get it to tree-like proportions, which is how it grows naturally in South Africa, it makes the most fantastic plant. And oh, they were wonderful. so revered um, uh, early last century that they were, the, the cuttings were referred to as, is there a daughter on that partaking? Oh, how lovely. I'm a daughter. I'm, a daughter. I'm mad about, well, I, I mean, I've, I would immediately feel like that about them. I have been swapping cuttings yeah. with, mm. with friends and it's one, it seems to me it's the most marvellous treat in that they've gone on, I mean, I, I've got two bay windows 
which I filled in thinking that the children would lie around reading books. That didn't happen. Um, but instead, now they're full of, um, of geraniums and uh, it is just, I've got a mixture. Yeah. Some of them are flowered all through the winter. Well, it's obviously bright enough because day yes. length is, uh, is the crucial factor in keeping them flowering. So yes. if they're as bright as they possibly can be, and a bay window would give them that. I mean, exactly. it's marvellous that they do that. And they're so cheery. A friend of mine sent me a picture the other day on Instagram and said, what do you think of my conservatory? And I thought, what are all those pink things there? Are they cyclamen? And so she said, no, they're my geraniums. They're well, still they're flowering. Yes. They're that good. They're, yes. Mm. They're, I mean, it's, it, it seems to me... Yes, yeah, some people say, oh, it's no good. You just cut them right back and, and forget about them for the winter. But I didn't have the heart to do that. I was so proud of them that I, I've just let them all carry on. And when providing, got... you tidy off, providing you tidy their dead and dying foliage, yeah. I think the older they get, I mean, so there comes a time when we have to manipulate them to make them fit in with the size of the area we've got. But if you, I mean, they've become almost tree-like, which is... To be revered, I feel. Yes, it's marvellous. I feel very, yes. very excited about that. And I think I'd also, I mean, I've, I've got a terrific amaryllis just just coming. I mean, just in the most wonderful nick. And I also planted a lot of narcissi and they've been coming out indoors and smelling lovely. And I had the best hyacinths I think I've ever known. Um, I have to tell you something. <laughs> you might not think you're um, much of a gardener, but you're sounding pretty good to me. Well, I've been sort of, it's hit and miss, and I have been loving it, but that's very, yeah. I mean, it, for you to hear you say that, I, I'm going to try harder this summer, it's going to get better. <laughs> that's lovely. It has, I mean, I think I've been longing to, to get at it mm. for myself, and I expect I will. I mean, my, the same bossy grandmother was a fantastic gardener, and she made one after another marvellous gardens, down to a little tiny one in Cly was her last her last home there was just yeah. a little yard but every single thing you wanted and in fact one of the um the plants that i'd always wanted to grow i found it's so exciting i discovered it here we cut back some viburnum that was sort of taking over one corner of the garden and and then i was walking past last winter i thought what on earth is that it's a chimamanthus and the winter ah. the spring sweet had just been sheltered yeah. in this sort of overgrown shrubbery at the bottom of the garden. So the thrill of, and Granny's thing was you must have, every single day of the year, you've got to be able to make a little bunch or a large bunch in the summer. And Chimamanthus is a real, it's one of those, yeah. And so December, January, when, when it's pretty hard to find things to pick, yeah, yeah. some twigs of that and bringing them in indoors. And I also love the trick when you're walking of picking, I mean, like I, I did some, probably entirely ill-timed pruning, but it was driving me wild, of a pear tree and an apple tree and a plum. And I put the branches in a jug in the hall and they all came out, which that thrills me so much. I love- I've just, I've just done it with Forsythia. We have a, yeah. a, a, a weeping Forsythia on one of the walls and north, north walls of the wall garden. And I bought, brought some branches in and Sally, who's my housekeeper, she said, what are you doing with those old twigs? <laughs> I said, they're coming into the house. Well, there's nothing on them. What? <laughs> a week later, we're festooned in lovely yellow flowers and she's, sort of, she's biting her lip, as they say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, she's possibly still not that convinced. It is one, there's that funny 
thing when some people just they put a BDI on that sort of thing they're longing to get it outside they don't think it should be in (laughs) (laughs) but I think um yeah my mum was very keen on this and she on a walk at about this time of year it happens sort of in the next few weeks we were walking um on Port Meadow in Oxford where I grew up and where we she moved after my parents divorced and there's that incredible smell of witch hazel and uh, she picked some of the branches um, and we took them home and they were in a in a bunch in a jug in the drawing room which was quite a cold room most of the week but they came out uh, just ahead of of um out of doors she knew which was the tree and the smell as they come out is like incense it's extraordinary really really marvelous trick and in fact i read a really good anecdote about that um, it's they call it balm of Gilead in America, and it's a it's a poplar. It's it's it seems to come in many different kinds, yeah. and has an extraordinary sort of witchy smell. It's absolutely delicious and mysterious. And you think, you know, why can't I buy it in Diptyque? And Alan Bennett wrote somewhere that he was eating out of doors somewhere in France, and there was this amazing smell. And he was sure it was the waiter who he was. He was asking a lot of leading questions about his aftershave, and somebody said, "Good, no, it's not him. It's that tree over there." <laughs> I love that, don't you? I do. I do love scent in the garden. I don't have anywhere near enough of it, but I was up at the Cambridge University Botanic Garden the other day, and I, I was walking towards their winter garden, and it was like walking into a wall of Daphne Belua. It was just like a no. wall of scent. It was the, obviously the breeze was drifting towards me, and you just wanted to sort of luxuriate in it. It was glorious. Yes, the winter um, scented things are such a mystery. And why? Why is Hamamelis or Daphne? Or who are they? Who are they wafting all that expensive perfume about for? Well, they're they're, they're wafting it because they're, they're they're actually people that they actually want to capture, i.e., the insects, the pollinators, are very few and far between. So they have to cast their net as wide as they possibly can, and that's really? why we have the great gusts of these of that. And it's often quite a sharp scent, isn't it, at that time of year? Very distinctive, yes. Yeah. Very kind, of, yes, yeah, strong, yeah. First time I ever smelt Daphne, uh, Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata, I think it was, was at Lanhydrock House down in Cornwall. And she found me before I found her. And I was literally around one side of the house and she was around the other side of the house. If you literally, know what I mean. right. And I literally followed my nose. <laughs> yeah. And there they had a plant on either side of a doorway. And what did I do? I came home and copied it because it was such a wonderful idea. It's a really what good a wealthy, idea, yeah. A wealthy idea. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> Lovely. Emma, do you, get, you have a garden there at your factory, do you not? We do. Um, and it's pretty marvellous. It's just a little uh, walled yard that was the um, electricity sub-generating station for the factory, which um, was built by the Meekin brothers. And we bought it from Johnson's in 96. And I think that had already, that particular bit of you know, electrical history was already history. It was mostly sort of people hoid their rubbish over the wall <laughs> and it was a sort of dead spot. And Matthew and I said, come on, surely we could use this. And we talked them into sort of getting rid of all the old, there were lots of great big old sort of Dalek looking machines. <laughs> and um, and we, we got very lucky in that we, we planted some pear trees and 
Um, and there was some rather rudimentary gardening. And then Arthur Parkinson made his way to us via um, Sarah Raven. She's a friend and he became a great friend and he did that garden for two years. And we miss him sorely, but the accounts department do not miss the bulbs bill, <laughs> which was unbelievable. He was, he was very persuasive and Matthew entirely, um, you know, swayable to his, to his plans. And it was gorgeous and wild. And anyone who saw it, um, I think really, really was knocked over by it. And it's, it's lovely now, but it's a bit more reasonable. I mean, it's a bit more yeah. sort of, and, and meanwhile, the, the trees have matured, the, the pear trees. And it's, it's just, it's very, very lovely having somewhere. Well, the staff use it a lot. I just, I love seeing people perched on the little walls and there's a lovely great big bench um, chatting. You need, you, it feels like an oasis in the city and that we do need an oasis in life, don't we? You know, it must've been interesting um, Obviously, you've loved gardening for so long. You've, uh, you know, you were introduced to it by your grandparents. It's been a lifelong thing. But to be getting so hands-on, for it all to coincide with the pandemic and, and have a lot of your kind of garden centres and things closed, a lot of people then started ordering in, you know, loads, all of the seed companies, all of the plant selling companies who did mail order were inundated. You could oh, hardly nice. get hold of yeah. anything. But did you find yourself sort of, I don't know, succumbing to the charms of various plants and things online, were you able to get hold of stuff? Um, no, I mean, what, what I, my confession earlier on was, was sort of it really. I bought what I could find and I quite liked that scavenger. I've got, I've got a bit of an obsession with that of not, I just, in a way, making a great thing about it and having lots of, uh, Lots of sort of urgent needs of it's got to be exactly this. I was pleased to do it first with what came to hand. There seemed to be something right about that. I can feel it. I mean, I um, Sarah's lovely catalogue just came through and I, <laughs> I can hardly control myself. So I think I am going to succumb. But last year I, I didn't, you know, I just, I just rumbled along and when the garden centres opened up, I dashed in too late, all the seeds, they'd seen, you know, some crafty person managed to get in there before they were open. There was nothing left. It was desperate. And I, tell you, I, I tell you what, Emma, that made us all, I mean, us included here, because um, places where we often buy fillers for summer pots and things like that from, they, they had nothing left. And so it made us all think on our feet and we had to make do with what we had. And it yes. was very much going back to that kind of wartime mentality in a funny sort of way, is make do and mend and, and you know, get on with it. And I was quite surprised with what we achieved. Um, and oh, I wish I'd seen it. used a grass and lots of our pots because I had a lot of it. I wouldn't have yeah. used it if I hadn't had to, but because I had to, visitors to the garden said, gosh, that's wonderful. We'd never have thought of that. Um, and it, it was a funny sort of sensation because it was an idea that was forced on me and it worked. Yeah. Well, that old saw, necessity being the mother of invention is yeah. true, isn't it? And yeah. you've got such a fantastic eye that you'd, and the, the idea that you've just, there's something that I've got a lot of and I've got a great big gap. How am I going to make that something be visually dramatic. Yeah, well, you're definitely the man for that for that challenge. 
definitely it's i back you how, every time it's funny how things change as well because i've realized that i'm quite lazy and i spend quite a lot of money on those little compostable pots every year because i find they're handy mm. to prick out into and then plant on and i realized last year when i couldn't get hold of lots of them that little cut down toilet roll tubes work very well instead. yes <laughs> yes so, so now I've been hoarding up toilet roll tubes, much to my other half's great upset, uh, throughout the last sort of six months or so. And I have a mountain of them in my little kind of <laughs> potting shed type thing, former dog kennel, <laughs> current potting shed. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to using cut down toilet roll tubes. And I was in the garden centre the other day and I'd picked up a, like a big stack of these pots. I thought, no, I can save myself them. a little Don't bit of money, them. use my toilet rolls. Yeah. You can even get, and I think Sarah sells them, Emma, those little kits where you can make um, biodegradable flower pots from newspaper. So yes, your well, newspaper can then be turned into a flower pot, which is recycled and goes back into the ground to give another tree some sustenance to grow and produce more paper. I like that. I tend to have used most of my newspaper lighting the fire. But <laughs> well, we do too. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I and I, I've got an awful lot of the such pots as I accumulated last year. I, do I have to? Get, should I be very clean with them? Should they all be scrubbed out a lot if, before well, I reuse them all? It's a, there's a, there's a there's a way of doing it, and, and there's the way we do it. Mm. If you if, if you do what the textbooks tells you, of course you'll take an old tin bath, zinc bath, or whatever outside on the freezing cold day, and, and, and <laughs> yeah. you'll fill it full of water, and you'll wash and scrub all your pots and dry them. If you're lazy or you're busy, then you won't. And I don't think it necessarily matters because all you need is a brush in one hand, the pot in the other, and a quick brush to get rid of any old soil and things. And normally that would be all right. That'll do. There's every possibility that you could harbour disease in there. But, That's, um, I just wondered about the dreaded, Will is there some sort of mouldy problem if I... We'll, we'll put, it, put it this way, there could be, but nine times out of ten there isn't. There isn't, okay. That's very reassuring. Thank you, sir. I, I think it also depends where you're going to put them, because um, I, I did find last year I'd been <clears throat> a little lazy on the washing front, and I think one or two of my pots in the heated propagator, because it was this warm, moist situation, yes, yes, yes. it encouraged it all, but... I think in lots of other places it wouldn't matter, but if you're going to stick things in a heated propagator, I think what I've learned is maybe to be a bit more spick and span. Those are the ones. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know I could, that makes sense actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Now you said that Sarah Raven catalogue had turned up. So are you building up a list of what we call flomos, which is our, our talking dirty sort of word, our term for this feeling that is basically my whole life, <laughs> this feeling of desperately wanting to grow things. And because I've got this tiny suburban garden, I mostly can't grow them. But it turns out with 32 acres over at East Rustonall Vicarage, Alan is living a life of Flomo as well. So <laughs> are you building up I don't up think a... size, size of garden is no object here, do you, don't you? <laughs> but but I, think, I think that I do recognise wanting what you can't quite do. And I'm pining for more fruit trees. That's probably my biggest want. And there are several planted in this garden and through thick and, I mean, bite, they've hung on by their toenails, poor things. It's, it's such, a, such a very, very, very thin soil um, and very free draining. So goodness knows how they've survived. But so I dream about groves of blossom and cherry orchards all over again. And I can't do that. And that, that makes me want it more. So I think that, that Flomo thing is definitely the thing you can't have, isn't it? I mean, yes. I would like the whole house draped in roses. Um, oh, I was thinking so about much. what you said about roses a little while ago. And I remember reading somewhere that 
Somebody wrote about roses as being the, the most beautiful flower on the ugliest of plants. And yes, absolutely. And that is true. I mean, we plant masses of perennials amongst our roses. So they disguise the bits that you don't want to spray and you don't want to look at um, yeah. and just see the flowers. And that's, yeah. but that makes for a slightly messy garden, but that's the way I like to garden. I don't want it to be too regimented. No. The old-fashioned rose garden, we don't aspire to anymore, do we? No, we don't. That, no. I, I, it's a monoculture. Monocultures become boring. And always, they also always become disease-ridden. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I think I like the look of climbers, um, more, yes. uh, climbing roses more than anything else. Yes. But this, again, this spot here is not very conducive to roses. It's pretty windy, as you can imagine, just on the coast. And I haven't got... I've got some shelter. There's a great big stand of ilex trees, home oaks at the end of the garden, which is up to sort of just right at the end of the garden, which is very nice, but it casts a big shadow yeah. in the mornings. Um, so I, it's sort you know, of. It's, you know what they say, Emma? Life's a bitch and then you marry one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you get divorced. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and he takes the gardening tools away with him. <laughs> I mean, that really is too much. You can't take the gardening it was, tools. It was so funny. I, there was one gardening glove, the wonkiest fork ever, and a broken wheelbarrow. And that was what I had for, for gardening kit. And he'd literally just said, oh, she won't need any of them and take them all away. <laughs> but never mind. Never mind. It's all fine. And I'm, I'm completely happy now. <laughs> <laughs> so Alan I feel like Emma needs you know seeing as she's managed to get through a year with one gardening glove uh, a deflated wheelbarrow and a wonky a wonky fork I feel like we need to give her something back <laughs> so, so she's got this site are there any plants that spring to mind are there yes. roses that will cope well uh, regardless of the wind <laughs> the windy situation the coastal situation well I would go straight away to David Austin roses because a, because I love the shape of their roses. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're, they're relatively, they're being bred to be as disease-free as you'll probably ever get a rose to be. The one mm. good thing about where you are, Emma, is in actual fact, the breeze. Because yes. the breeze blows the blessed fungus stuff away and everything else. So oh, that's that very encouraging. Yeah, that is a plus point. And I think that, um, I mean, <laughs> I dare I say, I, I just had the most fabulous birthday present from Thunder Fairy here with <laughs> us today. Yesterday was my birthday and arrived in the morning, a rose, a climbing rose, which was on my must-have, must-have want list. And it was which called... Which one? Okay, what does that do? Gortwasakla is, is a repeat flowering, climbing rose of moderate vigour. Um, and it is most glorious mid 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 pink, but it has old fashioned cup shaped flowers like nice. um, like Granny's roses. Yes, then, lovely, lovely. And the, the and the the right kind of. I mean, the one thing about Austin roses, mostly uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, the greater majority of them, the palette is right for the English light, which is did you yes, know that? True. You know yes, 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 gentle, <laughs> gentle, gentle. Yeah, exactly that. We are not the California. No, exactly. So I've got a bit of a yearning at the moment for bright red roses on a black. Um, there was a, a very undistinguished shed at the bottom of the garden. And um, the builder's dad, uh, Roger, 
Hendry and I have had the most wonderful time making it into a sort of um, escape. It's a really, I have to say at the beginning of the lockdown, it was highly likely I'd end up with no money at all. And, and I love the thought that it's okay, it's fine. I'll go and live in the shed in the garden. <laughs> and, and so Roger saw to it that it was going to be very nice down there in, in quite a, a, a sort of primitive way. And it's all, at the end it's painted black. And I really love the idea of bright red roses on black and my geraniums. Exactly. All, um, you know, in their pots all around the, the door. It's got a sort of ramshackle um, veranda on the front. So I think... Um, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a wonderful climbing rose which has single messy flowers called Bengal crimson, or sometimes called crimson Bengal. Um, and it flowers, it, it flowers forever. The great thing is that often on the coast or close to the Norfolk coast where we're living, our winters are not that severe. And in severe winters, if you're not too handy with the secateurs, and you just already told us that you can't bear to cut your geraniums back, you probably <laughs> won't bear to cut crimson Bengal back because it will flower right the way through the year. And it is a oh, lovely my goodness. Okay, well, that's a really great tip. Thank you very much. And I will tell you how I get on with it. Where would I get it from? If you pay the gardener a visit, I shall give you one as a present. Oh, well, that's a very, very nice thought. I'm longing to pay you a visit. But I don't <laughs> worry, I'll do plenty of shopping, whatever happens. <laughs> I, I can feel it. My pent-up shopping desire. It's all very well being all Quaker and austere about it and saying I hope I'll take what I can find on stalls by the side of the road. I am absolutely longing to have one really good go. Yeah, I know what you mean. And we'll all find inspiration wherever we can because I take, we, we try and take the dog on a variety of walks around our village. You know, we've explored every footpath possible. But in the end, especially when you're busy and you're, you know, you're working and just nip out for a quick lunchtime walk, we just go around the streets of the village I live in. And um, there's a very un, sort of unsuspecting, unexciting house. It's a little bit derelict. Um, but the front lawn, I think because no one tends the garden anymore, is just an yeah. absolute carpet of crocus at the minute they've naturalized oh, right and it's yeah. every day i just see it and i think oh if only i could get crocuses into this lawn here which is the lawn. the garden is divided into the flower beds which are mine and the lawn which is my other halves i'm trying to steal bits of the lawn when he's not looking but if i could yes. if i could get crocuses through that lawn it's not it's not a very exciting flomo it's not a very exotic flomo but but, no, but it, i know what oh. you mean when you see a really established thing there was a there was a garden like that in it still is in Jericho in Oxford. We all used to go and dangle over the wall at this this time of year, but it actually throughout, it's marvelous. And it's there. There are people living in the house. But I think oh, they've done marvelous gardening. Now they're old, and it's got that beautiful kind of um, negligent look of you know of slight neglect, which actually is my complete ideal. And the trouble with that, it, lawns are just the anti. If I didn't mow here because it's very, very thin soil, I think it would be just a sea of wildflowers. There is incredible scabious grows in the bit that I don't cut. And what's trying to come up all the time, last summer the lawn was full of moon daisies, which eventually I was sort of, I asked Peter when he was mowing to swerve round them. I loved them so much. And if, if my, one of my daughters is very asthmatic and she says, mommy, you've got to cut the grass because when you don't, it makes me sneeze so much. But if it wasn't for her, I think I would be inclined not to not to cut the grass at all. I, I mean, I, I could, I've missed the croquet, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> Brings out the worst. Prior to having um, 
crocuses that will seed for you all over the garden get crocus thomasinianus. I mean, you get plain thomasinianus, but there's thomasinianus in various colors. One, there's a purple one, there's a white one, there's a rose colored one. Um, and they are the darling little things that self-seed all over the place. They're the ones to have. Yes, one that'll, that'll naturalize. Which of the snowdrops will do that? Because you see, sometimes they really take, don't they? And some yes, of them are they're not, they're not so good in a thin soil, Emma. I think that uh, right. snowdrops rather like um, a slightly heavier soil, and they also like a soil that doesn't necessarily dry out in the summer. Um, so yeah, they quite like to be, they, they don't mind being dried out when they're when they're dormant but you know they they'd like the moisture they like woodland conditions yeah of course they do really don't they they want to be they want to be leaf mold under the trees yes. i'll try them down the bottom look at lexham hall where where they have those wonderful sheets and sheets of them i mean that's thanks oh. to the victorian forefathers that planted them yes i mean once thought yeah we have to know sometimes you can't have it yourself you go and enjoy someone else's don't you yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and if you <laughs> want so to if you want to um, get sucked into the expensive world of galanthophiles, a couple of podcasts back, we talked to Val Bourne, uh, the wonderful writer, and Brian Ellis, who sells snowdrops. We'd covered, I think, over 45 different varieties to set your heart aflutter and make you want to sort of start collecting them. But only do that if you're willing to start parting with hundreds of pounds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, um, I think I think I will just take myself off to look at other people's. <laughs> I'll just fool myself. I do. I think. Um, I mean, one's torn between wanting everything and wanting to do what works, sort of where you are. That's the thing, isn't it? There's no point really trying to make things grow that are going to hate your soil and None situation. None yeah. at all. Go with what go with the flow, as they say, and what your soil in your garden tells you to do. Yeah, it's the only way, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Now, Alan, so I've got a bit of um, crocus flomo, and we've got all kinds, all manner of flomo of fruit trees and roses from Emma. What's your flomo this week? Well, it's a Daphne that I heard about only two days ago. I mentioned earlier that Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata I met at Lanhydrock House in Cornwall, or she met me. Um, the scent assaulted my olfactory senses. <laughs> and um, I just had to find out from whence it came. And the, the one thing that I slightly niggles me about Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata is the fact that this Oreo Marginata, which means that the leaves have a yellow edge and they, oh, yeah. kind, of, they kind of clash with that pink flower. Now I've got a plain green leaf form with a pink flower, but there is a form of Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata, which has white flowers. Now that wouldn't offend me at all because the white and yellow I, I would love to have. And it rejoices under the name of Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata Sakiwaka. <laughs> I think you're pulling our legs. <laughs> I'm not, it's S-A-K-I-W-A-K-A, -A -A, Sakiwaka. <laughs> But um, yes, I think that will that will make an appearance in the garden here. And I have been on line looking for it. And of course, it's, everyone's sold out. That's partly lockdown and partly the fact that it's quite rare, I think. Do you do we imagine that all this this raging, rampaging purchasing online and in the garden centres when they were briefly open? Do you think all these plants have died or is there some terrific gardening going on out there? What's your sense? Is have what happened last year? 
I think it's some and some because we had such a lovely summer and some of the plants that were bought, they won't have been watered enough. I mean, if they're bought by people who don't know what they're doing, they give them what I would say a cup of water when they need two gallons, um, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so there'll be some things, some plants that have suffered, but I mean, I'm sure there will be um, quite a lot that have succeeded. And it's only going to have to take one little bit of success that will encourage somebody to branch out and become a better garden. Mm. I agree. I agree. It totally. One success really cheers one along, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's like children. I mean, give them an nasturtium to grow them seed or give them some radishes to grow them seed. Anything that's quick or cress. Do you remember growing cress on an old piece of flannel on Definitely. the meat? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely loved it. In fact, I had a terracotta hedgehog. It was rather a nice yeah, thing. I remember those. You soaked it. You had, in the end, I think he was draped with loo paper because otherwise the seeds just did. It wasn't quite sort of shared enough. The, yeah, didn't hold the seeds properly. Well, talking of seeds, I think it was a good friend of ours, Richard Hobbs, a botanist who does sell seeds. who was talking to another seed seller once who said, well, I don't know what happens to 80% of the seeds we sell, but clearly they're not being grown or we'd all be swamped by all the plants well, exactly. we're selling. <laughs> and actually, did, did, did you both find yourself joining in? One of the ways I got over the absolute absence of seeds in any of the shops was um, various friends would post a few of theirs because you never do use them all, do you? No. And I remembered that. And in fact, Matthew was very kind. He sent us quite a sent sort of emergency package of salads and radishes right at the beginning and said, get planting. Yeah, we um, well, I sent Alice and Chilean Glory Vine and I sent my friend little pinches of seeds as well. So I think uh, there was quite a lot of seed swapping and I hope there's more of it. Seed swaps must be one of the most exciting things going. It's a really good idea, isn't it? It's yeah. a sort of, it's really worth, idea worth promulgating. Yeah. Um, I cannot believe we've talked for ages and I've enjoyed every single second of it, Emma. It's been such, such a treat. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. There was so much to talk about. It's been so nice. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you for your company. It's been enchanting. Yeah. Really, really nice. I can't wait to come to East Ruston. Um, I will look on your website to see if, what date in April, but I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> With bells on. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you and come Hi, again. And happy gardening. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Fordice here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.